0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this webinar on Digital by Default Opportunities and Risks for the COVID 19 Generation. This event is part of the LSE Festival 2021 Shaping the Post COVID World, and the webinar and the festival runs all this week. Uh, My name is Sonia Livingstone, I'm a professor in the Department of Media and Communications here. And among other things, I coordinate the Global Kids Online Project with UNICEF, the Children Online Project with colleagues in Europe, and the Digital Futures Commission with the Five Rights Foundation. And I'm really delighted to be chairing this event today. We're recording and live streaming this session, as I expect you have noticed, and we're going to include time for audience participation. So do please put your questions in the Q&A box, and we will come to them in a bit. So as we all know, among the many other shocks and transformations of the past year, COVID-19 transformed society's reliance on digital technologies as the infrastructure for education, health, um, family, work, and much more. Almost overnight following lockdown, children's lives became digital by default Infrastructures, of course, are taken for granted, necessary, the means by which uh, vital activities become possible, but digital infrastructures are far from um, unproblematic, and they don't always serve our interests. In the last year, we've heard a lot about the so-called COVID generation, and few of us thought we'd be still thinking about this generation one year later, that we'd still be locked down. It seems to me really timely to ask some of our big questions about children and young people's experiences, the difficulties they've encountered, maybe some good things to come out of it all. And it's time to listen to children and young people's calls for change. Will we, should we go back to how things were before? Or is this the perfect moment to research, reflect and demand change? Crucially, the spotlight has been on digital inequalities and exclusion uh, as children and young people have um, especially had their education online, but many other aspects of their lives. There's been attention to data and privacy issues, Um, a lot of thought about the wholesale adoption of EdTech, including Zoom, of course, as, as we are using today. Uh, and concern about digitally facilitated forms of aggression and exploitation, as well as unmet mental health needs. At the same time, our digital lives bring some pleasures and new possibilities, and young people are often in the vanguard of exploring those, figuring out how to learn. I've heard um, young people playing hide and seek on Zoom, um, learning how to access and research the family's pressing needs for reliable health information, staying in touch with friends through gaming, uh, even becoming digital activists. Earlier on in this past COVID year, child rights organizations sprang into action, as did researchers working with children and young people. And once everyone had figured out how to do research and consultation during lockdown, which was not so easy, some really fascinating projects got underway. Of course, not all of them are focused on digital technologies, but none could ignore the digital dimension of young people's lives. This is a global pandemic that we're living through and experiences vary hugely around the world in ways that we, I think, are yet to understand. So today we've invited expert speakers involved with four cross-national research projects to reflect critically on what can be learned from their research about children and young people's experiences, needs and rights and how they could be better served in a digital world. Konstantinos Papakristo is the youth lead in the COVID under 19 Life Under Coronavirus Global Research Project and he's the creator of Teens for Greece an online forum for young people to express their ideas to help Greece. The COVID under 19 project led by Kristen Hope Birchall at Terre des Hommes, has organized a host of children's rights and research organizations including Global Kids Online among many others to realize the promise of Article 12 of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is to ensure that children across the globe are meaningfully involved in the discussion about the response to the pandemic. Maya Gotz is head of the International Central Institute for Youth and Educational Television at the Bavarian Broadcasting Corporation and of the Prejeunesse Foundation. In the early early days of the pandemic, she designed and coordinated an international study in 42 countries that inquired into children's perception of the Corona crisis, their knowledge of COVID-19 and the role that the media play in this. As I think she'll discuss with us, the children media and COVID-19 report revealed the role of media as a source of information and a crucial lifeline to the world. Patricio Cuevas-Para is Director of Child Participation and Rights at World Vision International and a Children's Rights Advocate. I think his report on children's voices in times of Covid was the first one I read on children and young people's experiences last year, uh, at a time when children seemed almost unnoticed in terms of discussion of the impacts of the pandemic. His focus is on children as young activists, as people who want to respond and who have acted in many ways over the past year, uh, which is a refreshing uh, in a world where adults mainly expect to provide for but not hear from children. Laurie Day, our final speaker, is a director at Ecoris UK, leading on research with children, young people and families. And he has a current project for the European Commission on the role of digital tools in supporting inclusive education across Europe, and a project that I've been a little involved with by the Nuffield Foundation growing up under COVID-19, exploring the social impacts of COVID-19 with young action researchers in four very different countries. In a moment, I'm going to ask the speakers to address my first question so we can discover what they've found in their research. But first, I have a question for everyone in the audience, and I believe we're going to present a poll. So if you give this slightly simple question, but we would love to get your views, whether on balance, digital technologies have made children's lives better, worse, or not made much difference during COVID-19. I realise I don't know how we get the results of the poll. <laughs> Maybe someone is going to tell me them in a little while. But thank you uh, for answering, and um, if you haven't answered already, please do. I'm sure we'll figure out the results in a moment. So I'm going to organise that. That oh, there we go. All right, we have a. Bunch of optimists in the um, in the Zoom room, uh, just about on balance. People listening think digital technologies have made sure. Maybe we can't quite imagine a, a pandemic without the digital. That's that's a, a question, a thought to conjure with. Um, but interestingly, a third think it's made things worse. No one really thinks it's made not made much difference. So we have a a slightly kind of polarized um, audience listening to us. um, And that I think helps us uh, focus on the research that we're now going to hear about. So I have a very straightforward question to our four panelists to get things going. I'm going to ask them to keep their remarks fairly short, um, kind of three minutes um, max for each. And I would just love to hear um, based on the research that they've each been involved in, um, what, what have been the consequences for children of the sudden reliance on the internet uh, triggered by the pandemic? Um, I'm going to uh, ask the speakers in turn, but please feel free to put questions in the Q&A as we go. And I'm going to start, if I may, with Constantinus. Uh, Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I think it's definitely a very interesting question, especially in the times we're living in. And in order to answer that, I think I'll go back to the history a bit of COVID-19. So uh, COVID-19 actually started back in April in the early days of the pandemic. It was created actually by 30Zone. And the main idea behind it was that children from all over the world were going through this uh, pandemic. And there wasn't something that could amplify their voices and raise awareness about their experiences. So COVID-19, I tried to do that. So what we initially did was to launch the uh, Life Under Coronavirus Survey. There is a global survey aimed for children between the ages of 18, sorry, to 17. And it was translated to 27 different languages along an easy read version so that children from all backgrounds could take part in it. At the end of the survey, we achieved actually to make the largest global survey based on the experience of children during this pandemic, and also to be the survey that used a child rights participatory approach. This this survey was uh, developed in collaboration with our international partners, such as for example, the Queen's University of Belfast, the LSE, uh, and the Office of the Special Representative, the Secretary General on Violence Against Children. And we also worked with a diverse group of young people from more than 28 countries. I think that during this pandemic, there's been a substantial lack of information and that was made in a child language or in a child-friendly format. And many children mentioned that in their survey. And especially in the times that they were experiencing from school closures, confinement, isolation, they felt the need to express that. And because in COVID-19, we truly believe that the experiences these children are going through are very unique. And each individual should have a platform something that they're able to express their experiences, express their ideas. We managed to do that. So I would like to read something that a 14 year old girl from Costa Rica said. In the survey she said, now more than ever teenagers are suffering from anxiety. We have to do too much work for school. My eyebrows began to fall off because I'm so worried I won't pass my course. There are many We think about suicide. Some demand too much from us. I have no internet connection. and can't talk to my friends. That makes me feel very depressed. I feel bad for not being able to see my family and friends. So we're we're seeing testimonies from children all around the world asking for things to change, asking for a platform for people to listen, politicians to listen. And I think... In this way, maybe the internet would be something that could empower and allow this, the children to share their views, share their experiences. But at the same time, that may be easy in a way, maybe in a place of privilege, because we mostly assume that we are all digital by default. But that is not actually the case for all people around the world. In our survey, 44% from certain parts of the world, such as Africa, mentioned that they were not able to access the internet when they had to, such as for example, when they had to join their online classes or when they had to speak to their friends. We also tried to work with uh, children from detention centers, refugee camps and homeless centers, and 62% of them said that they had no access at all or hardly any access to internet. While at the same time, migrant asylum seekers had significantly lower access between 38%, 38% and 27% specifically. And I think it's so important They will build infrastructure that will help these children and use platforms and spaces to amplify their voices and share their experiences. And it's really important to understand that not everyone is in the same situation and each people is going through a very difficult time. Or, I mean, some people were finding it a bit easier. Maybe they were spending more time with their parents. That's something that was quite interesting. But it's definitely a very hard time, and especially when children and young people feel isolated, we should do something about it. And use the internet to help them.
0: Brilliant, Konstantinos. Thank you very much. You have um, begun with a, uh, in a somber mood, and I think um, rightly so, reflecting the many things that you that you've heard in the project from children, um, often living under very difficult circumstances, in circumstances where technology could have helped a lot more, um, but hasn't been there when when needed. So, so, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to turn to um, Maya, Maya Gotz, for a view from um, the project on children, COVID, and media.
2: Thank you very much. Um, well, to answer your question very flat, children had to become media literate in a very short time. Of course, a lot of them already know how to use the techniques and where to find the right programs and how to control the media use in, in a healthy way. But uh, especially, for example, if I'm talking about Germany, quite a lot did not. So they had to come media literate in a very short time. And of course, especially their teachers, which was the biggest lack in international comparison in Germany. Um, something again, just from Germany, are uh, in Germany, we have a very media critical um, public discourse. So the press, everyone, normally says they shouldn't watch television, they shouldn't watch too much computer. Um, and suddenly, every, now everything turned around. Now, computer was the only way, the internet, how to get access, how to meet friends, um, and actually was the only hope for uh, parents to survive the home office plus children at home. So the bad thing suddenly becomes the good thing, um, which made some very interesting change in how we discuss media here are what gets very obvious in Germany is the gap between the ones who have not only fast internet but also who have enough devices because if both parents are in home office and there are two or three um, siblings in, in the house, it's just it gets very crowded. And this gap come even more clearer if you look at the international study we are a study in 42 countries where you clearly could see it if you talk about the differences, One is on the country level. There are countries who who have nearly no internet like Cuba where you just have internet on certain spots and it's very um, expensive or uh, Democratic Republic of Congo where they not everywhere has internet. So um, it was really interesting to do research there because then we are back at paper. So they had questionnaires which they filled out. Um, So on country level, it really makes a difference if they have the possibility to get access. And then the other thing which got clear um, is on family level. If the family has the possibilities, how how much they could share it with their children or need it for their own access. Um, And of course then, on children's level, how much they could deal with it. What got clear, (laughs) what was clear or what we got out of it, um, children and teenagers used media for contact. it was the only way how ca- they could share the opportunities how they can share and at least have a little bit of feeling that they're not so alone um, and especially for the teens is really was important we also as we have heard um mm-hmm. about 20 percent of t- in the teen study um, who were in a depressive phase and really had a hard time they used it for school for in uh, for information to get information for example on covid um they also described it as escape to just forgot for a moment the world around and hope just pass the time pass by that things get normal again. Um, and they use it for uh, to cope with their feelings so they are. Um, we ask them how do you deal with the situation and then media was a very central point how they deal with bad mood with too much energy with whatever So media really become a big part of their life and how they could hope for their emotions. Brilliant, thank you.
0: Um, something very important, I mean, many very important points. I think um, uh, one about, um, for those of us who, th- who, who often think about digital literacy or media literacy, suddenly we see how very important it is to be able to just manage and interpret and be critical of all of this technology but I think as both you and Konstantinos um, uh, are, are pointing out the, the question of the infrastructure and the provision and questions of inclusion, yeah, I just very, it's no point understanding the technology if you can't access it. So um, Patricio, uh, yeah. Tara, can I turn to you? Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so
3: much. But um, I conducted a research on the beginning of the pandemic last year in February, March, April, where as you mentioned, there were children voices, they were absent from the global discourse in terms of COVID-19. So there were two situations at that time that we perceived. One was an adult-centered response uh, from a programmatic level, but as well policy level, and children they were absent or they were victimized where we tried to find out what's, what's happening with them. Where are the voices? What are the opinion, perception? So I did a research in about 12 countries. So for instance, I talked to children from Nicaragua, Peru, Brazil, Ghana, Kenya, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Mongolia, Bangladesh, etc. And one thing that was the same across all the countries was the lack of access to internet and the schools shut down from one day to another day without any warning. Most of the country claim they say now we are moving to um home uh, online education. The school will be open. All the children will have access. But many of the children told us that never happened. For instance, in Peru, one of the um, participants say they told us the school is closed one day. Next day we were at home with no communication at all with the school. And during month they didn't have any class, anything, no homework. No communication with a school teacher, et cetera. They say, like Maya, when she mentioned about DRC and Democratic Republic of Congo, children mentioned exactly the same. They didn't have any access to internet. But in the other hands, for instance, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Romania, they have access, but they were very exhausting for them, very uh, kind of a lot of pressure. But as well, they said those children from rural areas they were not able to join the classes. So or the whole situation exacerbated inequalities where inequality was already something, a major problem in the communities. Mm-hmm. When I asked them about their perceptions in terms of if they are listened to, none of them say they were listened to, not in the school, nor in the community, not in the family. But at the same time, they say that most of them are more educated than their parents, they have access to internet, better access to information, so they were, those passing information to others about COVID, about the measures, about what, can, can, what kind of thing they can do or not do. Mm-hmm. And many of them as well become activists during this time. Or they were activists before, but knowing this topic, and they start doing some online sessions, webinars, Facebook Live, to keep a good moral among the peers, but as well teaching them. In Bangladesh, children and young people, they did Facebook Live with more than 1,000 participants. And they were just talking about that, answering questions, and then become so sophisticated, they start inviting uh, public figures, external ex, ex, ex speakers, children from other country. that was a very empowering element within the tragedy. So th- I think there are many learnings of that. So children are not just the victims, so they don't want to be labeled at like that. They are agents of change, they are competent social actors, and they can help others in need. That was one of the key findings. So something positive within the tragedy.
0: Very good. Thank you. And um, I I really appreciate um, hearing about young people as activists, as um, actors in this world. It amazes me how often I um, go to events where people talk about children, but not with them or um, uh, consulting them or indeed treating them as, yeah, as, as actors uh, in this world. So thank you. Um, Laurie, Laurie Day, thank you. Would you like to um, share the results of your research in very different countries?
4: Certainly. Uh, Thank you, Sonia. Uh, Yes, so just listening to the presentations uh, today, so um, the the Growing Up Under COVID-19 study, our focus was particularly on 14 to 18 year olds, so youth rather than young children, and it was transnational, but um, I guess, located in the global north. So we um, are doing research in the UK, Italy, Lebanon, and uh, Singapore. So in terms of the the consequences of the pandemic for young people, we looked at three main areas. Um, The first one of this was the implications for young people's everyday lives and the people around them. So really the, the more personal actions that they were taking. The second was uh, young people's perceptions of how the crisis is being managed and the decisions that are being made largely on their behalf, as, as it turned out in a lot of cases. And then the third was the uh, the media and public response elements, so all three interlocking. Um, and I think what came through um, really strongly was that Internet and social media cut across all three of these themes um, inescapably so uh, during the pandemic period. Um, But I think a couple of things particularly stood out because of the methodology that we adopted. So we were using participatory action research. So we're working with young people as co-researchers through the project as well as them being the the subjects of the research. Um, And I think two things really stood out. The first one, was again this, this sense of young people's agency um, being the really underreported aspect of the crisis to date. So, young people very much being portrayed on the one hand as victims of school closures, and then the next minute as the villains who are out breaching uh, social um, distancing rules. But actually, what was really clear from the research is that young people have been actively responding and adapting, both on and offline, all all the way through the, the crisis, kind of behind the scenes, um, away from the public eye. The second was that um, young people's experiences of the crisis really varied considerably according to personal circumstances, and there were some really sharp contrasts within the project. So, what for some was an extremely challenging period, um, for others, to some extent, was actually quite liberating, um, despite the seriousness of the, the wider public health emergency. And for young people on the project themselves as well, we um, were acutely aware of these uh, contradictions. So looking specifically in terms of young people's digital lives, as Sonia mentioned, there were opportunities and risks um, sort of bound up together. So starting with the positives, um, what came through quite strongly was the way in which young people were quite often using the opportunity afforded by lockdown to, to reinvest in their self-care and their well-being. So with the social distancing came the lifting of these social and academic pressures that, that many young people had and this created a space for them to, to really reflect on what's important so during this time many had used the internet as an outlet for creativity for self-expression whether through diaries music or uh, in some cases researching their, their faith or their heritage for example There was also um, a really interesting work around reinvention of relationships and social networks so young people had often prioritised friendships that were meaningful outside of the context of school um, and this meant the emergence of new friendship groups online and this got really interesting as schools started to unlock and there were moral dilemmas around sort of who who were were within these groups um, responding to social distancing and so forth. Um, Young people had also developed a much better radar for spotting fake news and for triangulating different uh, sources of media and channels uh, during the, the lockdown period and they were taking social action so again that came through very strongly from our research too. Inevitably there was a, a flip side to this as well so um, I think firstly there were some question marks about the responsiveness of services moving online so disrupted education but also disrupted healthcare. care um, and sadly as well examples of professionals disappearing um, under the cover of lockdown and, and, and really not being held accountable. And secondly I think more time online inevitably meant that there were heightened exposures to uh, risks and harms, whether that was experienced by young people personally, but also through what they had discovered through their own research in in relation to their peers as well. Um, And I think as Patricia was saying, particular issues for young people who were already experiencing vulnerabilities uh, prior to the crisis, such as poor mental health, poverty or family conflict, this was very much compounded by a situation of being in isolation uh, and, and having to deal with these privacy issues. So, real um, a mixed picture, I guess the good, the bad, and the ugly as well. But a lot more nuanced and a lot more complex than has been uh, portrayed in the media during the crisis.
0: Brilliant, thank you, Laurie. Um, uh, absolutely, um, I really appreciate that everyone's um, responses are, of course, much more uh, nuanced and rightly so than the um, the original kind of poll question that we asked the audience. Of course, technologies um, uh, are are many. Um, offer many uh, risks and opportunities um, in ways that are complex and depend on the context and, if you like, the situations in which children and young people found themselves when lockdown um, first arrived. Um, I appreciate that you've all kind of explained a little about the project, and I think what um, folks listening will have heard is the way in which these research projects, which of course had to be got off the ground very quickly um, in ways that are um, ethical and um, uh, uh, ambitious in the number of countries that are that are spanned. Um, everyone has um, taken the kind of, you know, made the effort and figured out the ways to do uh, the research in a way that's participatory, that is with children, not about children, that is uh, including, uh, young people um I know um in the covid nineteen um project not not only including children um for data um collection but also in the data analysis and interpretation of the messages um I think um the different projects have kind of engaged young people in different ways um and that helps i think in kind of moving us from questions about research and research findings um, to uh, consultation about uh, for, for how things should change. And I think uh, each of you in, in some way has uh, has kind of hinted at what should change or been um, suggested a ra- range of things that should change. Um, I'm going to ask you each if you could um, distill a kind of range of, of calls, so uh, maybe everyone say kind of one or two things that should change. Um, so that we get a kind of a different a, a, a range of things on our agenda, um, and I don't know if it's possible also to say, you know, who who should be the agents of change? Um, it's easy to is is one thing to call for change; it's another to say, you know, do children want to speak their message to government, to um, uh, the digital industry, to local communities, or the messages for parents? You know, there's there's lots of agents. Um, Constantinus, let me let me start with you. What what do you feel are the kind of um, the priorities that emerge from the COVID under nineteen project, and maybe maybe who who are the agents that should step up and make things better?
1: I mean, I think uh, generally uh, there are the different issues uh, that that are coming up. Um, I mean, more generally, I would say we're seeing. uh, global inequalities, especially now with uh, the vaccine race, it has become a lot more prominent. Yeah. And in a way, it's creating a divide of two worlds uh, mm-hmm. with countries, uh, for example, the UK or the US, stocking up on vaccines. Mm-hmm. And countries, for example, such as uh, certain parts of the world, such as Asia, for example, lacking on vaccine access till 2024, 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have countries with accelerated growth and countries that are lacking behind in years of process.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that we need to understand that this should be a global process and it should come from all governments, all institutions, all the NGOs. Mm-hmm. to work together for equal access to information, to vaccines, uh, better education. Mm-hmm. And, and I think during this time, as individuals as well, as societies, we, if something positive happened out of uh, COVID is that we truly understood what matters in life mm-hmm. and w- why we, we live, which is our families, our friends, traveling, and living. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we should take forward and incorporate more into our life after the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, children during the a survey were speaking a lot about hope after the post-pandemic war, um, but also about hardship and anger. So I would like to share some more quotes after I'll share my screen now uh, on what some children said from parts of the world, which I think it's very important to amplify their voices and listen to what they said. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, starting from a 17-year-old girl from the Philippines, she said, a huge number of children are more and more becoming victims of the intensive digital learning and poverty. During these times, the parents of children are losing their jobs. Mm -hmm. Many households are unable to have food to eat. Many do not afford to even support their family needs. And many they don't have access to the internet and technological devices. Many children will be left behind. Again, it's a topic of mm-hmm. people being left behind. Mm-hmm. I think it's very crucial to address that. Mm-hmm. Another girl from Myanmar said, due to social distancing, we hardly go out. We need entertainment and play. If our government can stream a free, child-friendly, eco-friendly version of Kids TV channel, mm-hmm. in this way, children can still enjoy their time at home. But right before that, The government must make sure every child in the country has access to electricity, Mm -hmm. Mm please. And we're starting to see, in a way, a process of bringing and bridging the gap that is created by the digital divide. And it's a huge issue, especially if we move forward and forward into a more technologically advanced society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we should really address that even now, very important, especially for children that are disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And I think another issue that arises from that question of uh, technological advancement is also the freedom of expression and how views are considered and how we can use social media to use that. Mm-hmm. In in our survey, only 20% of children felt that they were listened by the governments. And obviously, governments are a huge agent of change. Mm-hmm. And I think social media also have a part in this. Social media have been shown in the past years, and in the past 10 years they've become a lot more prominent, that they are so powerful tools of expression so powerful for politics and for so powerful for people to share their experiences. And maybe we should start seeing social media platforms take a more ethical side and promoting ideas as such. I think that's very important. And even they're huge agents of change that we should look at. And I think the last one in terms of um, moving forward to the digital age and providing a better understanding would be having support to get reliable information and access to information in general. Mm -hmm. And even though we may become, we think we're becoming digital by default, in our survey we discovered that most children, around 62% of children that took part in the survey, trust their parents still as a primary source of information. Mm -hmm. And I think that it has two sides, actually. I mean, we're seeing a huge anti-vax movement, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, especially in our times, very scary. I mean, it's uh, delaying the effort and everything. Uh, so I think informing the parents and the, and the children, obviously, as well, starting from education, starting from the internet, starting from social media, from the governments, could mm-hmm. also be in child-friendly language, is very important. Mm-hmm. So in terms of agents of change, I would say governments, mm-hmm. the children themselves even can be agents of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, schools, social media, and generally internet agencies, I think, are very important as well. And obviously, international organizations such as mm-hmm. WHO, the United Nations.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, all of them. <laughs> all of them, we often call for a kind of coordinated action across all the different stakeholders. Um, uh, sometimes I worry that that means that everyone can point the finger at someone else that ought to be ought to kind of lead the way and not enough happens uh, And um, uh, Constantinus, as you as you I mean you 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 are very eloquent in in what should change. In a way, what is sad is that we kind of knew this a year or two ago, but it didn't happen. And now we have been caught in a situation where it is just so vital that, um, that we address the questions of inequalities and privacy and safety and opportunity in this digital world. Um, so maybe now it is, it is higher on the agenda. Um, Maya, you said something that, um, that, that rang true with me. At, at the start of your talk, you said um, Uh, families have been so against technology in many ways too much screen time and suddenly everything was screen time but i think we've also heard in some ways from from panelists um that uh we we uh said this too we also recognize um we cannot live in a completely media world we do need to get out see our friends breathe the fresh air i just wonder what whether whether you could distill your research in terms of Messages, a call for media organizations uh, whom I know you work with and try to kind of think, you know, how could they play a better role in their responsibilities towards young people?
2: Wonderful bridge. Um, because one of the int- really interesting findings of the study, um, we asked more than f- um, 4,200 kids in uh, 42 countries. Um, and we asked them what they know about uh, the coronavirus and we confronted them with them s- some fake news so and what we found is and, and on another part of, uh, of the questionnaire we asked them how much are you personally worried about the coronavirus um, and what we found is that children who are informed who know a lot about the coronavirus and can identify fake news are less very much worried so it's very mm-hmm. important um, that they have information uh, which speak to them. So they need children's television. And you clearly mm-hmm. um, could see a difference. For example, UK was uh, one of the top countries where children really know a lot about the coronavirus. And the Philippines, we just heard it, they were, they had nearly no knowledge. So it's mm-hmm. um, the fear was, was there, they didn't know what, how to deal with it. Um, and in another part of the study, we did qualitative interviews with children in refugees on forced migration So refugee camps in Syria still, Mm -hmm. or uh, in refugee shelter. Um, And there got got obvious, very clear lack because most of them didn't have any information in their own language. Mm -hmm. So they were really on fear. Some of the families didn't go out for two months because they thought uh, the war has arrived in Luxembourg in this case. So it's really, uh, we have to think about what languages do the children speak in the country and how could we give them some access? And just one Mm -hmm. little other finding, um, we also asked them, okay, sometimes media can really help and now it's really important, but sometimes it can get too much. How do you uh, shape? How do you control your media usage? Mm -hmm. And interesting finding was the ones where they just said, well, my parents control it, and um, they tell me what to watch and what not to watch. They don't have any more competencies. While the children, the teens, who said, "Well, I have to take care of uh, myself," and I find this way, this way, this way, this way, and they had a lot of competencies how to control um, the me- media consumption. So, a clear um, ask for, or a clear uh, um, plus. <laughs> for more competencies for the children, because especially in those times, they need to know how to control media usage themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes,
0: yes, um, absolutely. I think, um, uh, I do hope that if uh, digital literacy was not It was not on the agenda of governments before, it absolutely needs to be um, now, Um, but I think also, um, as you say, there are also questions about what the media should provide, what what they can do, they often very powerful um, organisations. Patricia, I'm thinking about the role of children um, as agents for change Um, when when lockdown is over or even now during lockdown. um, How how can they be? How can their actions be better recognized um, as we kind of call on all of these different agencies and stakeholders to try to learn from this experience and and respond to some calls?
3: Yeah, I think the first is to have a clear position that children have the right to participate and to be listened to in this society. If that right is having always prevented in different ways or have been tokenistic, not sustainable, or have been more... Consultation or no dialogue, no influence in decision making. It's a, a list of consistent challenges all over the time, across different countries, region, etc. But for instance, uh, my my research engaged with twelve children and young people as my co-researchers, which was essential to succeed in my research. So, mm-hmm. were no any possibility to do fieldwork. I couldn't travel to any country. Um, our uh, contact people in different countries, they couldn't leave the office or couldn't leave. But the children, they live in the community. So they were able to interview their peers. Sometimes via WhatsApp, Facebook, talking in the street, or when they gather in some safe places. So that show that when we have a, this intergenerational cooperation with children and young people, like in our research, this can be done. As mm-hmm. I was able to do it, reach a number of children I am involved then in the decision making process and analysis, and then become as well a group, my advisory uh, group. So, this needs to change because we see families, schools, churches, any religions leader, policymaker, et cetera, and all different levels from the local, very local community until the global stakeholder. It still is a resistance to listen to children and to treat them as a competent social actor. So I think that's the first thing they can need to change. And children have proof, they have the ability and they have the will to engage in social change. And if they can mobilize their peer for actions that they believe are very important. Most of the children I interview are from very deprived communities, very vulnerable families but they were always worried about other people that were more vulnerable with them, or people have no access to the no information. So they were always thinking how can reach them. So my call uh, today is to ask everybody in power, but power from community to the global to national countries is to listen to children, take them seriously, but it's not just to console them is how to take their ideas into account and how to report back to them, how we have been, their ideas used and decision-making. That process is very difficult. The listened is the easy step, but take into account and provide feedback in that should, should be sustainable is way more difficult. Mm-hmm. So, but I think uh, COVID-19 provides certain opportunities, a lot of challenges, but mm-hmm. the opportunity is that they prove they want to do many things. and. And I saw as well some uh, webinars organized by children, young people, just mm-hmm. to meet other children from other country, talk about their problems. So mm-hmm. they were able to mobilize others to interact and make something happen. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. I think you're, you're making me think, um, Patricia, that in a way, um, uh, COVID has been hard, lockdown has been hard, but um, now, as someone said earlier, we kind of know what needs doing. And so in a sense, the hard work really does begin now. Um, and um, it could be enormously eased if if people would listen to, yes, listen to children and young people and, and work with them rather than um, <laughs> without them. Um, Laurie, I'm uh, coming to you uh, as our fourth speaker again, and I want to ask you um, a tricky question, if I may. Um, I think we've... Um, We've been talking about many different parts of the world and um, uh, the differences, but also some of the commonalities. Um, And perhaps because your project focused on four countries where you could get to know the context a little, I wonder if you feel it's possible to kind of draw out the calls from children and young people for change kind of different in those contexts, Um, or do you feel that they really did kind of say, they had some similar demands, despite the different parts of the world they
4: live in. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think um, probably a combination of both. Um, it, it was really interesting that I, I think in the context, because it was there was a lot of differences between individual young people who were involved in the project and their peers, as well as the country differences. So um, although the backdrop was very different. So, for example, in uh, Lebanon, when we were talking about um, access to education and um, What was talked about in the context of being quite challenging in the UK in terms of the shift to online learning Um, you know it's a whole different um, level in terms of Lebanon in terms of access to to internet um, sort of going down um, real sort of um, much more infrastructural challenges going on there Um, and then similarly within Singapore I think to some extent there were assumptions about um, digital learning being perhaps more established and more embedded but irrespective of that, I think a lot of it really comes down to how that's activated by individual professionals, by individual schools and some of the decisions that they're taking. So it really felt like ultimately a lot of the challenges were the same, that actually education is a right, that um, access to education has to be something that is negotiated between um, children, families and schools, irrespective of the context. And it was where that dialogue wasn't there that, that, that things really um, felt down. And again, I think... Um, So so the issues were the same, but I think what was also interesting was there were definitely different cultures of participation within the different countries. So um, within the UK, you could really get this sense that there's quite a tradition of um, sort of formalised, organised youth groups and and youth forums and and movements. Whereas, um, for example, in Italy, there really isn't the equivalent there. So when we were looking to solutions, I think in Italy, it was saying, look, uh, One of the the sort of big challenges here is is really about just children and young people not being invisible in the media. You know, we we need to have a voice per se. Um, Whereas I think in the UK, there was much more of a focus among young people around what kind of structures can we put in place? Because it's it's really not working at the moment. we're being kept at arm's length from decision makers, from from governments, um, and sort of kept over in a box over here. Um, but in either scenario, I think it was again coming back to that message that it has to be a partnership approach. It can't just be listening to children and about their issues. That actually, children are competent actors, and that you know they have something to contribute to issues that aren't just specific to them as an age group. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, I I I um, ask you that question partly because uh, I I think it's 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 difficult to um, you know it's crazy really to try to generalize across the world, but uh, it is very striking how many countries and how many parts of the world um, these four projects uh, uh, encompass, and also as I think you've all um, stressed the very different circumstances that children live in within countries and the the situation of children who are. Um, uh, refugees or um, asylum seekers, as several of you have said, um, is very different from those who are the relatively privileged living in the um, urban parts of a country. Um, I can see some uh, observations in the Q&A about uh, the different circumstances from the point of view of children who um perhaps have special educational needs or disabilities or are men, facing mental health difficulties you know, the, there are so many differences um of course we cannot um, possibly uh, encompass them all here um but i just wonder um perhaps if we uh take um and and questions are very very welcome in the q and a i'm trying to kind of Synthesize them really now, as we as we come to the last um, the last part of this webinar. Um, uh, I, th- I think there is really a, a, a sense of urgency from the questions, and I invite you to to, to respond to any of them. Of course. Uh, about the children who are particularly disadvantaged or particularly without um, the, the resources from their society, um, where perhaps we've, we've, we've hoped some of us who study technology that the technology would provide the kind of the work around the, the helping hand where society had failed that maybe the, the technology could provide the means of inclusion. Um, but the I think the, the the gist of the questions might be is that perhaps particularly where children have been let down by the deployment of technology and the design and the possibilities of of technology. So um, uh, I think um, I might ask um, speakers uh, if there's any particular question in the Q&A, which I hope you can all see, um, please feel free to answer it. But my my kind of general question might be, Uh, perhaps what can can schools do, what can educators do? There's a lot of emphasis on educators, uh, really to support the children uh, who are most at need or have been most um, disadvantaged by COVID-19. And is technology part of that solution or is the technology actually irrelevant to to what it is that the educators could be doing? Uh, Any any order really. Sometimes we get very focused on technology, but it isn't always the, the number one answer. Um, I don't know, Maya, What do you do? You feel that the schools could be kind of better using the technology to reach the children who particularly need it, or in some other priority should take precedence?
2: Uh, definitely in some countries, this would solve a lot of problems. Um, beside them are that all children should have Possibility to have a device which they could use are in some countries this was just not possible because internet um, is just there for for the for the richer ones. Um, they're the way, in, uh, especially in South East Asia. Um, they often got back to school television. Also, for example, in Chile. So mm-hmm. now, discovering what you can do is you can reach out and try to. Uh, offer a lot of content over television or in the countries where even television is not there over m- mobile phones or still television or over radio so mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. get very clear in these kind of situation we have to offer content, and if we can't offer them by Internet then find the more traditional media to use it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think we've um, we we definitely uh, see the full range of media be mattering, especially if, if, if you, not everyone has the connectivity, as as you um, have all very clearly said. But uh, it's interesting to hear people talking about radio again, um, or or to see uh, in in this country the BBC also provided schools programming, um, uh, even though the popular view is that young people don't watch TV anymore. So we kind of Use what's what's possible, um, Patricia. I know you 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 kind of heard a, a, from a mix of young people and young activists. Um, what would you say about those who are kind of facing some of the most intense difficulties?
3: Is it yeah? Is- but definitely, this is an issue of inequality, as an equality and in all level of the social life. But mm. one thing is the uh, digital component, technology. So it's clear now. It's about 48% of the population of the planet have no access to internet. So we're thinking half. you most of them in the global South. So, but as well, it's not just access to internet or devices. Uh, I've been talking to children, young people from communities in Africa, they don't have even electricity. Mm-hmm. So just the chance to have even a laptop, a, a internet connection later, is mm-hmm. almost impossible. So it still will be this huge gap in access to technology um, so, but uh, children always say that having, if they have an access to technology, even it's co- a community level, so an access to computer that a group of children or community can use is something that they really value. They don't see sometimes just need to have an individual possession of mm-hmm. uh, internet or a laptop or tablet that can be used collectively. So that is another way as well to address many of these issues. but. Mm-hmm. In terms of the children and young people that have um, been talking to the activists in many different issues from many countries. Mm-hmm. So even if they have all the technology, all the digital access, if they don't if they are not listened to, what is the point? It does say always say. So what's the point to go on a conference? What's the point to do a research? What is the point to go to a community meeting if people don't listen to us? I think that is a major uh, mindset change we need to have uh, mm-hmm. and from the international community to a very community in rural areas. So we need to change that. Uh, otherwise, children will continue being in the margin of the society. But as well, in another issue that COVID-19 evidenced is, is the different identities, social identities that children have is affecting as well as her, their possibility to go out, to have a network, to communicate with other, for instance, gender, socio- socioeconomic status, language, different sexual orientation, um, ethnicity, races, all these elements as well. We cannot take those out of equation in terms of the access to technology, use and information, and to be listened to. That is kind of, for me, a key part. I'm not covering many of the other rights because I know many other experts will cover that one. So mm-hmm. my interest is to cover the right to be heard the right and be heard. participate, yes. the yeah. right to have an opinion. Thank you.
0: Yes, thank you very much. Um, Laurie, maybe um, I, I, I can see some very kind of pointed questions in the Q&A about um, what are the steps needed? to overcome the inequalities, the digital inequalities that we've been talking about and the way in which the digital inequalities kind of rest on underlying socio-economic inequalities. I don't know who, who you're taking your research results to, as it were, and uh, action.
4: Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. And I think in terms of the, the report that we've produced so far, I think we identified recommendations for a wide range of stakeholders, we started writing them down and realised actually that the list is huge. So, you know, there, there's some actions there for um, the government and and uh, sort of national decision makers. There's also definitely some actions there for schools, um, particularly in the UK, like, because we do have a, a very devolved education system, um, you know, a lot of differences of experiences came down to decisions that were made at a school level. So really having Just really simple mechanisms in place to establish a dialogue with students around, uh, you know, what education should look like, about what their needs are, can make a a huge difference. You know, it doesn't have to just be a a top-down policy. Um, We also had recommendations for the media because, again, I think a lot of what's been unhealthy um, and, and what's really obscured children's rights during the pandemic has been these very narrow representations, um, again, that, that really just don't give justice to children's lived experience. And that's where the project came from in the first place. We just thought, you know, wh- where are the young people in the coverage? Here? You know, what what's their contribution? Why, why are they not being seen as, as stakeholders at the table? Um, but I also think because there's been a, a focus on education what seems to come through from young people in the project is it's, it's not just the learning component it's also the mental health and well-being and actually um, even during the, the lockdown period um, it's not just about whether or not uh, devices are there whether connectivity is there it's also really about what, what are the psychological effects of, of what's going on at the moment um, you know what's happening within the family that might be uh, might be difficult. And alongside all of the challenges i think what would be a shame would be to throw away what we've learned from that experience so that you know there were real sort of seeds of things that were promising um along the lines of you know schools much more proactively engaging having those conversations with parents um beyond just monitoring their child's education really just calling them and saying how are you are you okay how are things in the home um, how's your well-being you know how, how are you doing um, and just small things like that that really um there was the evidence was that really wasn't happening systematically in the way that it could. So I think the big message is, yes, there's been a lot of shocks from the COVID experience, but in thinking about going back to, to normal and non let's not forget the, the positives that did come out and the things that have really kind of perhaps forced schools and, and forced other stakeholders to rethink about you know what kind of support is, is needed.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, excellent. Um, many actions are needed from many organizations. I I find myself wondering, um, as we kind of map out what we want from governments, media, uh, educators, and so forth. Um, Konstantinos, in in the COVID-19 project, um, the project has kind of brought together many child rights organizations and activists, and um, uh, I have sometimes um, myself thought Uh, Covid is an interesting moment for some of them to kind of recognise, of course they're very aware of many of the challenges children face, but they haven't always thought so much about the importance of digital technologies. And I wonder um, what your um, children's rights organisations are often the the champions. What what, what could they be saying now about digital equality, inequality, um, the nature of access and so forth? Would you have them prioritise it? or not? Uh,
1: definitely, I think it's uh, a huge problem, uh, it, it, the more it's growing it's getting ever worse and the more we uh, leave it untouched and I think that's something definitely we should look at from. Um, because they're also very, I mean the internet and social media and all these platforms are very powerful and you can have a huge reach inside them. we all have seen how Greta Thunberg started from uh, an Instagram page and how that grew to millions of children. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marching around the world
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but I think if, even if we look at the more like primary source of uh, the way that children are using the internet and that's education
3: mm-hmm. and
1: myself I'm a university student also it's been mentioned in the q about uh, students with learning disabilities I'm mm-hmm. actually dyslexic as well and uh, i telling from personal experience I think it's I mean I have a laptop I have internet so but, but it's definitely a struggle and online learning cannot replace in-person teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important that we make the return to in-person teaching, but we also keep some lessons about how we can use the internet and digital tools in general to involve more people and use these tools to make it a more, a more anthropocentric form of education, in which children will not only learn about maths and physics, which are obviously very important, but they also learn about defending human rights what it means to be human, music, art, and mm-hmm. that can be more useful for also children with a learning disabilities, children of minorities, children from the LGBTQ plus, uh, mm-hmm. community. And I think it's really important if we take something out of it and use it to involve more people, even in the uh, creation of solutions mm-hmm. through art, through music, because that's what is that's what inspires people.
0: Mm-hmm. It's the
1: stories. It's the, the people coming together.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. I'm um, um, aware that we have um, come to the end of our time, and I'm um, and there are many really brilliant questions in the Q and A that um, uh, I we could we could have taken another hour over. I find myself reflecting um, on the poll at the start, um, where more um, more in the audience felt that technology um, had helped young people during lockdown. Um, And in a way, we've had a kind of depressing but I think realistic conversation about the very many difficulties that um, technology has not quite helped enough with um, and could help more. Um, So we'll stop here. Um, I very much want to thank all of our speakers. We will put links to everyone's research on the festival blog. Uh, We didn't have time to hold a new poll, but um, I'm wondering, uh, maybe the answer will be a little less positive, but uh, we've had a great call to action to improve things. So thank you so much, everyone, for participating. Um, Watch the festival blog, participate more in the festival if you wish. Uh, And um, I'll say from London, at least, uh, good evening.